Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, what a difference a day makes. You know, between Tuesday evening when the markets first began to realize that Donald Trump was going to actually win the election and the predictions of collapsing stocks and soaring gold prices appear to be taking hold because at one point the Dow was down about 800 points and gold was up about 60 bucks. All of a sudden, the sentiments started to shift. And by the time the U.S. markets had opened for trading, gold had lost its rally. The stock market had surrendered, uh, had recovered, rather, its losses. And we began a huge rally. In fact, the Dow was up about 1,000 points this week. This was uh, one of the biggest up weeks in the Dow, I think, since 2011. Also, the gold market ended up down. I think gold was down about 70 bucks on the week. It was better than $100 below the high that it hit on Tuesday night. Percentage decline of about 5% or so. Silver also down about a buck, about a 5% move on the week. Gold and silver stocks, they were down closer to 20%. And the opposite was going on in the bond market than the stock market. I just said the stock market had its best week since 2011. The bond market had its worst week since 2013. And it looks like a lot more carnage can come if we really start to break down. Yields are still low. The yield on the uh, 10 year is just above 2.1. And on the 30 year, it's now above 2.9. These are still low yields, but they're not nearly as low as they were a little bit ago. But what's more important is the momentum in this move and how much higher interest rates could potentially go as this bond bubble deflates. But what is responsible for this chains of heart? Everybody was so convinced that the markets would tank if um, Trump was elected that we had a 300-plus point rally on Monday, the day after the FBI decided that they weren't going to do anything 
about the email scandal. And the market rallied because people thought, oh, okay, this means that Hillary is a shoo-in. And so the market rallied because Trump wasn't going to be president. And then Trump became president and the market rallied even more. Uh, so, and again, the opposite on gold. Gold sold off when it looked like Hillary would win. Then it had a big rally when it seemed like she wouldn't. And then after she didn't, we got Trump. The medals went the other way. What is responsible for this change of heart? Now, remember, I always said it never made sense to me why people thought Hillary was good for the stock market. I mean, what did Hillary mean? I mean, for business, more regulation, more government, higher taxes. What was Donald Trump promising? Well, he was promising tax cuts, tax reform, more importantly, uh, repatriation, regulatory reform, repeal Dodd-Frank, right? repeal Obamacare. So he's saying we're going to take away the regulations, we're going to take away the taxes. That has got to be good for the economy. So why were, were people so excited about Hillary when Trump was the one that was talking a pro-growth, pro-business agenda? And what surprised me was how quickly people figured this out as far as understanding that Trump was better than Hillary, and then all of a sudden we had this big rally. But here's where you, the markets have it wrong and have really have it looked at. And I touched on this on my video blog, so you know you should watch that too if you haven't. I, there might be a little bit of repetition between the video blog and this podcast, but I want to get into some things that I didn't get into on that video blog. But a lot of people are now looking at the possibility of Trump along with a Republican Congress where we don't have divided government, we have united government, and it might unite behind Donald Trump, although he promised to drain the swamp, right? That was what he ran on. It seems like uh, he's surrounding himself with people who've been swimming in that swamp, and I don't know to the extent that much water is going to come out of it. So far, it looks like business as usual as far as uh, the people who are advising him. But he does seem to have a lot of support from maybe some of the conservative heritage foundations or some of these organizations. So he may be getting uh, some good advice, uh, better advice than uh, than past presidents may have uh, may have had. But the idea is that this new uh, united government will embark on massive fiscal stimulus that up until this point had been missing because we had divided government and so we had gridlock and so that meant that all the stimulus had to come from the fed and so we were simply relying on monetary policy which was qe and low interest rates but now we don't have to rely on the fed because now we're going to get double-barreled keynesian stimulus right we're going to get tax cuts and ta pro-growth tax reforms and regulatory relief, that's one stimulus. But the other stimulus is going to be big increases in government spending on infrastructure to put people to work, on the border to keep out the illegals, more money for our vets. We're not going to make any cuts to Social Security. We're going to build up our military. So we're going to have this you know, guns and butter type economy, not necessarily war, but we're just going to we're just going to spend and we're going to have massive fiscal stimulus. And therefore, we no longer need the monetary stimulus. Right. Because now we're going to get the fiscal stimulus that has been missing for so long. And now we're going to get all this extra growth coming from this fiscal stimulus. But also we're going to get more inflation because there is going to be uh, larger deficits 
but mainly I think they're talking about the higher inflation coming from stronger growth more so than than rising deficits. But it's the latter that's actually true. But people are jumping to this conclusion that we're going to have this renaissance of growth thanks to this new stimulus that had been missing for so long. And a lot of people, you know, want to make the comparison to Ronald Reagan and how he came in. And there are a lot of similarities between, you know, electing Reagan and electing Trump. But there also are some important differences that people who are making these comparisons are overlooking. I mean, first of all, you know, Reagan was an outsider of the Republican Party, very much like Trump is an outsider. They weren't, you know, carbon copies of one another. But when Ronald Reagan came to power, you know, the, it, the Republican Party was dominated by Rockefeller Republicans. These were very liberal Republicans. Basically, Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller was the Rockefeller with whom uh, they were associated. He was the grandson of John D. You know, by the way, John D. was the richest American ever of all time. Not America, the richest person to ever inhabit the earth, adjusted for inflation. I think I've seen estimates of his net worth of, I don't know, $400, $500 billion in today's dollars. You know, contrast that to the richest living person in the world, who I still think is Bill Gates. And he's worth about, I don't know, $80 billion. So a fraction, a small fraction of what John D. was worth. And by the way, you know, um, Bill Gates dropped out of college, but Rockefeller did him one better. He dropped out of high school. So the richest person in human history was a high school dropout. So, you know, you don't need to go to college or even high school, really, uh, to, to succeed. But his grandson, who was a governor of New York, was very, was very liberal and dominated the, the, the party. Now, the first challenger to that was Barry Goldwater, who did get the nomination, surprised everybody by getting the nomination in 1964, and then went down in flames in one of the worst uh, losses ever uh, when he ran uh, against Lyndon Johnson. And then, of course, the party swung back when they nominated and Richard Nixon was elected, who was very much a Rockefeller liberal Republican. And, you know, the economy was not good under Nixon. Nixon, of course, we know, resigned in disgrace. And his vice president, who, by the way, you know, Gerald Ford wasn't even elected. He wasn't his running mate. It was Spiro Agnew. And he had to resign, right? And then uh, Jerry Ford became vice president. And then when Nixon resigned, Ford became president. He's the, he's the only, this is a piece of trivia. He's the only American to have been both vice president and president, but never been elected to either office. So he became president. And then he actually appointed uh, Nelson Rockefeller to be his vice president. So that's how important this Rockefeller wing of the uh, Republican Party was. When Ronald Reagan took that nomination in 1980 from, you know, I guess his main challenger, there were a lot of people, but Bush, George Bush, who he ultimately picked to be his running mate, right, was more of the Rockefeller variety. And nobody in the Republican establishment liked Reagan. He was very much of an outsider. I mean, he didn't say I'm going to drain the swamp, but that was the idea, right? It wasn't that things were bad under Jimmy Carter. They were, but they had been bad under Gerald Ford. They had been bad under, under Richard Nixon. And he was really changing the ideology of his own party. And he won in a landslide. He got this coalition of uh, Reagan Democrats, right, disgruntled Democrats who voted for Reagan. Well, a lot of Reagan Democrats were the ones that voted for Trump, right? They maybe voted for Obama once or twice, but 
you know, they didn't want to do it a third time in Hillary Clinton. So they, they voted Trump. But Reagan was an outsider. And, you know, like Trump, he was known as an entertainer. I mean, even though he had served as a governor of California, he had two-term governor of California, most people associated him with his movie career or his television, being the spokesman from General Electric. I mean, uh, that's all everybody knew about him. And when he ran, I mean, he was an actor. It was kind of a joke. How You're going to elect an actor? I remember, you know, he wasn't like a big star. He was more, did a lot of B-movies. I mean, he was known, but he never really made it, you know, to the, to the upper echelon of, of Hollywood in that, in that golden era that he, that he came about it. I mean, the movies that were most featured during his campaign were these Bedtime for Bonzo movies where, you know, he starred opposite a chimp. So people would make fun of him, but they knew him as an entertainer. And that's how they know Trump. They know him from Celebrity Apprentice or The Apprentice, right? They, they don't necessarily know him as a real estate developer. I mean, some people do. The people of New York do, just like the people of California knew him as a governor. But to the nation at large, Trump's an entertainer, not a politician, just like Reagan was an entertainer. And he came to power at a time of economic malaise, of economic stagnation. I think that's 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 the environment what we've been in. One of the differences is back then the the statistics kind of revealed that there was a stagnation because the the statistics actually showed that the economy was weak, right? You had lots of inflation, you had high unemployment, but the measures that were used back in the 70s are not the same measures. You know, the methodology has been changed, so it's not as apparent that inflation is as high as it is or unemployment is as high as it is as it was then. But it's certainly apparent to the voters, and that's why many of them voted for, for Donald Trump. In fact, if you look at the, the vote totals, Trump, you know, he, he got about the same amount of votes, maybe a little bit less than uh, Romney and McCain got, mainly because of the third parties took about 5% of the vote collectively, which is very, very high. And so if you threw those third party votes away and kind of attributed the votes 50-50, then, you know, he might have had more votes. I think he would have had more votes than either of those Republican nominees. But you saw a huge collapse in the number of votes that Hillary Clinton got relative to the number of votes that Barack Obama got. So a lot of Barack Obama voters either voted for Trump or they just didn't vote at all. They were just so unenthusiastic about her candidacy that they, they just didn't show up for her. So this, was, this election was very much like the 1980 election uh, in that the economy had been bad and the people knew it and they saw hope and change in an outsider entertainer who was coming to Washington to, to drain the swamp. And there was a lot of enthusiasm. One of the differences, though, was that you know, Ronald Reagan campaigned at least about balancing uh, the budget. I mean, Trump mentioned how much debt we had, but he never promised to balance the budget. And Ronald Reagan was talking about cutting a lot of government spending. But of course, when Ronald Reagan came to Washington, which is something that could in fact happen to Donald Trump, when he came to Washington, he got trapped in Washington. Everybody surrounded him. And, you know, and all of a sudden, a lot of the things he wanted to do, particularly when it came to cutting government spending, Politically, he didn't do. Now, I know, you know, he had a deal with a Democratic House. He had Tip O'Neill there. And Donald Trump has, you know, both both branches of Congress. So maybe it won't be as difficult. He won't have to compromise as much. But we got these the big fiscal stimulus under Reagan. We got tax cuts. 
we got increased government spending, so we got a big jump in the de deficit, right? Or the national debt rose from about 30% of GDP when he was sworn in to better than 50% of GDP when he left office. Big, big increase in the national debt. But we had tight money, right? Volcker had interest rates very high. Of course, rates were coming down during most of the presidency, but they started very high. And they gradually came down. Bond yields were about 14% when he came in on the 30-year, and they were back below 8% when he left, which I guess is low in comparison to 14, but it's sky high compared to the under 3% that the 30-year is, uh, is yielding today. Inflation, which was running at about 9% when he was elected, was down about 4.5% when he left office. And again, it was a more honest measure than it is today. But you had falling inflation. Uh, you had this huge boom. And a lot of people are making that argument today. That is why you're seeing the carnage in commodities and emerging market currencies. That is why the dollar is soaring, because the idea is we no longer need the Fed's cheap money, because now we've got the fiscal stimulus. So the Fed is going to be able to raise interest rates more than we thought before. And as a result of tighter monetary policy, yet faster economic growth and larger budget deficits, we're going to have more inflation, uh, which, again, may lead to even higher interest rates. And that's going to cause the dollar to rise. And this is what is wreaking havoc in the markets. And none of this makes sense. If anybody bothers to analyze this, they would understand that it doesn't make sense because the circumstances that people are describing are impossible to coexist. The reality is, if we have bigger deficits as a result of tax cuts and more government spending, the only way for that to happen would be for the Fed to monetize it. The Fed would have to have even more monetary stimulus to offset or to make possible the fiscal stimulus. I mean, that's one of the reasons we didn't get fiscal stimulus, not so much because of divided government, because we couldn't afford it. You know, we, the Fed couldn't print any more than it already was printing. I mean, it was already doing QE. It would have to do it double if the deficits were rising. So if the markets think that we can increase the deficits the way we did under Reagan, yet it result in rising interest rates uh, that helps the dollar or the tighter monetary policy, they're crazy. In fact, even if you look at what happened when George W. Bush was elected to replace Bill Clinton, right? During that time period, we had increase in government spending. The Clinton surpluses went away. We got the Bush deficits. We got tax cuts. We got more government spending. And we actually got rate hikes after the Fed lowered them down to 1% for a while. We eventually got rising interest rates and a pickup in inflation. But none of that helped the dollar. And none of it stopped gold from having a huge rally. So the people who are jumping to these conclusions just don't understand they haven't connected the dots that should be very obvious because any increase in interest rates that results from larger deficits would choke off the very recovery that people are betting on. In the alternative, if the Federal Reserve makes the decision, and maybe there'll be some pressure on them to do that, to cooperate with the government, to monetize these much larger debts, and remember, if the Fed didn't monetize these debts and it allowed interest rates to rise, 
the interest expense would grow dramatically on the national debt. So in addition to a larger deficit because of lower tax revenue and more spending, the government would have to lay out more money to pay the interest, not only on the new money it's borrowing, but on all the money it's already borrowed where the uh, bonds are maturing and need to be rolled over into a higher interest rate environment. Now, I realize that economic growth will also generate some additional tax revenue, just like it did under Ronald Reagan, but it's not enough. It won't be enough to fully offset the impact of the tax cuts. Yes, there might be some additional revenue, but it might not make up for the, the size of the cut. And of course, then you throw government spending increases into the mix. These budget deficits could skyrocket well north of a trillion dollars a year, maybe closer to $2 trillion a year than $1 trillion a year. But none of that is possible without massive money printing on the part of the Federal Reserve. And so now you've got massive inflation. That is not good for the dollar. By definition, that's the dollar losing purchasing power. It's not bad for gold. I mean, I hear people saying, oh, we're going to have more inflation, so sell gold. That doesn't make any sense. If we're going to have more inflation, you should buy gold. But the mentality is we're going to have more inflation. Therefore, the Fed is going to fight that inflation by raising rates. And so the higher rates will mean a stronger dollar, and that's going to hurt gold. But what people don't realize is that the Fed will not fight higher inflation. They will surrender. It's inflation that's going to win the fight, not the Fed. The Fed is not even a position to step into the ring with higher inflation, because the minute they try to fight the inflation by raising rates, they crush the bubble economy. I mean, what do you think is already going to happen to mortgage rates based on this huge increase in bond yields uh, this week? They're going to spike and bond yields could keep rising next week. And the week after that, they could keep going up until they swear in Donald Trump. And of course, you know, Donald Trump has already said, and some of his uh, surrogates have said, that what Donald Trump wants to do is he wants to borrow on the long end. He wants to take advantage of these low interest rates to finance deficits with 30-year bonds. And so if he's going to be selling all these 30-year bonds, bond prices are falling now in anticipation of that massive supply because the Fed is not buying it, right? If people think there's no more QE, emerging market currencies are being slaughtered. They're not going to be buying dollars. They're, they're now starting to sell dollars. They're going to have to start selling their treasuries. So if you've got all the emerging market central banks trying to unload treasuries, you've got the Fed not buying any, and now you've got the U.S. government trying to sell massive quantities of long-term treasuries, how can the price of those bonds not collapse? And if bond prices collapse and interest rates skyrocket, what happens to the over-leveraged corporate sector? What happens to the over-leveraged consumer? What happens to the housing bubble? What happens to the banks? What happens to the government? Everything implodes. It's a much worse financial crisis than 2008, and so it can't happen. And so if we really get the big deficits that everybody selling gold and buying dollars thinks are coming, they're going to be monetized. We're going to have lots of inflation. And even if interest rates go up, even if the Fed raises interest rates slightly more rapidly than people believe they're going to raise them, if they even raise them at all, the increases will be tiny, incremental, and rates will be rising at a pace that is slower then inflation is accelerating. So even though nominal rates will be rising, real interest rates will be falling, and that is going to be extremely bearish for the dollar and bullish for gold, the exact opposite of the reaction in the market right now. But today, that reaction is there. It's real, and it is driving 
so momentum, you have algorithms, you have forced selling, you have margin calls, you have, you know, famous Druckenmiller came out and said, oh, I sold all my gold on the evening of the election because all the reasons that I bought it no longer exist. What is he? I mean, what reason did he buy it? Because all the reasons I bought it still exist. Yes, having Trump as president is better than Hillary Clinton and having regulatory reform or tax reform and less regulation is good, but that doesn't give us a, a free pass. We don't get a dead out of jail free card from this mountain of debt that has been built up under Obama, uh, under Bush, under Clinton. This is a gigantic bond bubble that has been inflating really, you know, for, for decades. And we don't get a free pass because we have Trump. Our economy is so screwed up the imbalances are so enormous from decades of this bad policy that we just can't elect uh, Donald Trump and now everything magically goes away. Again, it's like if you've been a drug addict or an alcoholic your entire life and then you make the decision that you're going to change, you're going to go to rehab, right? The American voter, if they really voted for, okay, yes, we're going to change. We're going to throw the bums out. We're going to drain the swamp. And we're voting for Trump. That's like the decision. Yes, I admit I'm an alcoholic. I've been making mistakes in the past. I acknowledge it. And I'm going to do something about it. Okay, well, what do you got to do about it? Check yourself into rehab and prepare for a very, very difficult experience as you go through the withdrawal symptoms of a drug addict who's no longer taking drugs. And if we are going to do get to where Donald Trump wants to take us, we've got to go into that rehab as a nation. We've got to deal with these problems, these imbalances. And that means we got to deal with this debt. And, that, and, and to me, it means we got to restructure it. We've got to reduce it. And we've got to make massive cuts to government spending. Because if you want less taxes, you need less government. The, the large taxes are there to support the big government apparatus. And so if you want to reduce the burden of government, you have to reduce the cost of government. You can't just say we're going to reduce taxes but still have all the government and we're just going to borrow the difference because there's a cost there. But nobody is looking at what Donald Trump would actually have to do. It's like, you know, you buy a business like maybe Trump, you know, Trump buys a business and then after he owns it, he looks at the books and he realizes, crap, this company's in worse shape than I thought. You know, I mean. It is in worse shape than he thought, or at least it's in worse shape than he was willing to publicly admit. And now he's got to do something about it. Well, he can't just continue to make empty promises that the taxpayers can't keep. So there, there's no way that we can have the economic growth that everybody is so excited about until we deflate the stock market bubble. And, you know, Trump talked about a stock market bubble when he ran for office. Is it no longer there, even though the market is now at a record high? Is it no longer a bubble just because he's president? And remember, one of the things that Donald Trump said he wanted to help fix our trade problem was a weaker dollar. He said, oh, these foreign countries are manipulating their currencies. Their currencies are too low. Well, they're a lot lower now than when he the day before he got elected. So if the problem was the dollar was too strong, we got a bigger problem now because the dollar's a lot stronger now that we've elected Trump. So people are not connecting these dots that really don't make sense. So when will the markets flip? How long will this narrative be able to remain if interest rates keep rising at the pace they're rising? It can't happen for long because 
the you know the higher interest rates are going to have to turn the stock market rally in, in, into a decline. And I also have a feeling too that during this week you had a lot of people lose a lot of money. Obviously, a lot of people made money, but people were caught on the wrong side of trades, and then they got reversed, and they reversed again. And we'll see, you know, when the dust settles, how many hedge funds just blew up in the last week. I mean, and what kind of losses there may have been from funds that were unable to meet margin calls. You know, people are, are trading on leverage with borrowed money. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some companies that got hurt uh, because their clients lost so much money that they, they wiped out their account and went upside down. So we'll see what happens as a result of that. But once the noise settles, maybe more and more people will, will understand that what they think can happen is impossible because there's, it's inconsistent. You can't increase deficits by a massive amount when you're already broke, when you have $21 trillion in debt and expect it not to have an impact. You know, Reagan, you know, our debt to GDP now is 105%. I mentioned that under Reagan, it went from 30% to 50%. We're already more than double the debt to GDP as Reagan ran it up to. And meanwhile, the GDP is a lot more fluff. We had a lot more manufacturing back then than we do now. And of course, back in 1980, America was still the world's biggest creditor. Now we're the world's biggest debtor. So we were selling bonds when we were good for the money. Now we're broke and we're asking people to lend us even more. And of course, we were offering bondholders a sweetheart deal, 14% interest when you had 9% inflation. I mean, that was a 5% real rate of return. And you could lock it in for 30 years when you had a Fed committed to fighting inflation and inflation was falling and falling and falling. And you can lock in these great bond yields. I mean, what's the deal now? We're asking our creditors to buy our 10 years at 2.1% or 2.9% on the 30-year when inflation is above 2% already, so they barely have any positive yield. But if they lock this yield in and inflation keeps rising as people expect it to rise, they'll have negative yields. I mean, we, there's, it, it's impossible. And of course, if interest rates rise to a realistic level, let's say long-term rates go to 5 or 6% in the next year, which is still pretty low, we, I mean, we can't even come close to affording that. I mean, nobody could afford that. I mean, what mortgage rates would go back up to seven, eight percent, you know, and especially if we get some reforms, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac stock is jumping, too, because they think, oh, Trump will save them and privatize them. Yeah. But without the government guaranteeing the mortgages, they're going to be a lot more expensive because now there'd be private sector risk so that they'd have to be accurately priced. Right now, you know, it's not priced because you have the moral hazard of a government guarantee. But even even if the government continues to guarantee the mortgages, they're going to guarantee them at a, high, at a rate that's so high, nobody could afford to pay these inflated prices. So this whole bubble is in danger of, of deflating. And despite what Druckerbiller is saying, the reasons to buy gold have not gone away. They are, in fact, stronger than ever, because if anything, Trump might accelerate the collapse of the bond bubble and therefore cause the Fed to have to restart QE sooner than it might otherwise have restarted it and do it on a bigger scale. And of course, all that extra money printing is just going to cause that much more inflation, which ultimately erodes the value of the dollar that much quicker and sends gold higher that much quicker. Also, when it comes to the debt, and the ability to finance even larger deficits that would result from the fiscal stimulus of tax cuts and spending increases. You know, the budget deficit right now at about 600, 700 billion a year 
is on the rise. And again, that is just the on-budget official budget deficit. The national debt is really growing at about a trillion dollars a year. So that's the true increase in the debt burden that needs to be financed. Well, one of the other things the Federal Reserve has been promising, in addition to the rate hikes that it's thus far really failed to deliver, is its commitment to shrink its balance sheet by allowing the balance sheet to run down, to not roll over the maturing bonds in its portfolio, and to allow the portfolio to shrink down to its pre-crisis level. That was something that Yellen was saying the Fed was going to do. And of course, I was saying that it was a lie that she wasn't going to do it because doing that was going to be impossible. Well, imagine how much more impossible it would be if there was fiscal stimulus. Because if the Treasury has to sell not only bonds to cover the current budget deficits, but to cover the larger deficits that result from the stimulus, but what if it also has to resell all the bonds that the Federal Reserve doesn't roll over? I mean, now you're talking about the government having to sell, what, $2 trillion, maybe $3 trillion worth of treasuries a year? I mean, the amount of debt that the U.S. Treasury would be asking the markets to absorb, coming into the markets, looking for buyers of U.S. Treasuries, when who can afford them? I mean, the dollar is rising so that foreign currencies are tanking so that foreigners who we would need to buy these Treasuries have less spending power with which to buy them. Americans don't have any money to buy bonds. Where is it going to come from? I mean, maybe if they start dumping their stocks, they could free up some extra money, but it's not even close to what the government is going to require. So again, if we're actually going to get fiscal stimulus, then monetary stimulus is more important than ever. It's not that it's either or. We can certainly have the monetary stimulus without the fiscal stimulus, but it's impossible to have the fiscal stimulus without the monetary stimulus. The only real way to finance tax cuts would be massive cuts in government spending, including national defense, which Donald Trump is promising to spend more, unless, of course, we can find a way to invoice the Japanese and the Europeans uh, for, for their share of the cost, but I don't even know how much we can get there. But then also, Donald Trump has promised to increase spending in other areas, and he promised not to touch uh, the third rail of politics, Social Security and other programs. Now, yes, if he gets rid of Obamacare, that, that might save something, but the rest of the government budget is growing on autopilot. The only real way to have tax cuts without monetary stimulus is to have massive cuts to government spending so that we no longer spend the money and so we don't need to raise the taxes. But if we're going to keep spending the money and we're not going to raise the tax revenue and we're going to borrow the difference, the only possible way to do it is for the Federal Reserve to print like never before. I mean, we're talking helicopter money. We're talking massive quantitative easing. And that is ultimately what's going to happen. The question is, how much longer will it take for the markets to figure this out? I want to switch gears, though, and talk a little bit about the the aftermath of the election. I mean, if you see some of these protests now around the nation, the protests of uh, Donald Trump winning the presidency, I mean, it really is a disgusting display. And also it's a display of hypocrisy because it was the left that was accusing the right of, you know, oh, you know, Donald Trump says he doesn't want to accept the results of the election. You know, you have a big movement now among 
Hillary Clinton supporters to have the electors, when they vote, not cast their ballots for Donald Trump, the person who won in their state, but to vote for Hillary Clinton anyway, to be a faithless delegate, which, again, you know, I, I understand the concept of electoral college. I mean, that's that's part of the fact that the founding fathers did not want America to be a, a democracy. They wanted us to be a republic. They didn't want the public voting for president. They wanted the electors voting for president, and they wanted the people to vote for the electors. So it was the representatives of the people who would cast their ballots for president and vice president, not the people directly. But in a way, you know, the electors turned into rubber stamps for what the people wanted to do. But in theory, the electors who are going to be voting in December in their various state legislatures, wherever they convene to, to vote, even though they may have pledged to vote for Trump, there are a number of states that allow the delegates to vote for whoever they want. They can vote for Clinton if they want. And the Clinton supporters are arguing that, well, you know, she did win the popular vote, just like Al Gore run the popular vote. So just vote for her. She really should be the president. After all, this whole electoral college system is, is bad. It's undemocratic. Of course it's undemocratic. That's why it's there. We're not supposed to be a democracy. That's why the senators were appointed by the state legislatures. That wasn't democratic by design. Right. That's why Ben Franklin famously said when asked, what type of government have you given us, Mr. Franklin? The answer was a republic if you can keep it. Unfortunately, we didn't keep it because, you know, we ended up degenerating into more of a democracy, which was exactly what our, our framers feared. But now you have people saying, you know, the, the delegates should just vote Hillary anyway. And this is super ironic because it was the left, it was Clinton and all the Clinton supporters that were saying, well, Donald Trump doesn't want to accept the outcome of the election. Well, now it turns out that the Clinton supporters, they don't want to accept the outcome of the election either. They're the ones that are saying, oh, it's rigged based on this rigged uh, system that was established hundreds of years ago by a bunch of white men, and it's undemocratic. And so let's just ignore the rules of the game and let the electors vote for Hillary anyway because she won the popular vote. And she did. But if you look at geographically, Trump won the country. I mean, outside of these major cities on the, the West and East Coast and, you know, a couple other ones, I mean, Trump won the heartland of America and he won, I mean, he won a lot of big states too. But I mean, you know, you have a lot more Trump support nationwide. The Clinton support is concentrated in, in certain parts of the country, whereas the Trump support is spread out throughout most of the country. And of course, there still are a lot of Trump supporters out on the West Coast. It's just that they live in parts of the state. They're not in the major cities of LA and San Francisco. They're again, spread out across, across the state. So geographically speaking, you have bigger regions of California that vote for Trump uh, than the ones that voted uh, uh, for Clinton. But nonetheless, uh, the, the same people that were so critical of Trump saying, well, you know, We'll see whether I want to accept the results. Maybe it's rigged. Maybe something goes wrong. And they were saying how terrible that was and how he's not respecting our traditions. Well, now they don't want to respect those traditions because they want to abandon the Electoral College and have the electors just vote for Hillary, even though she lost fair and square. I mean, it wasn't even close on the electoral map. I mean, Donald Trump got 290 electoral votes. I mean, he killed her. It wasn't even a squeaker. Um, they, they couldn't call the election early because in all the states that he needed to win, he was, it was close, but he was ahead in every one. 
So it would have been almost impossible for him not to win just statistically because she didn't even have to win all the states that he was winning in. And Hillary wasn't winning in any of the states she needed to win. Uh, so even though it took a long time to officially call it, it wasn't that close in an election. And, and he won. So but now you've got these people trying to overturn it. But even worse, did you see some of these videos of the protest? There's one in particular. It's a horrible video. I don't even like to promote it. I mean, I saw it because my wife told me about it. And there's a group of young black, I think they're men. I think they're all men. I can't really tell how old they are. It's a little grainy. But they, they're probably, you know, teens or early 20s. And they're beating the crap out of this, you know, older white guy because he voted for Donald Trump. That's what, I mean, they grab this guy and they're, they're, they're punching him in the face. When he's on the ground, they're kicking him in the face. When he gets back up, they're punching him in the face again. And you can hear a woman, a black woman, you know, by the sound of her voice. I can't see her, but, you know, she sounds as if she's black. And that's not a racist statement. I mean, just speaks in the way a black woman would speak. And um, she's basically she's saying... He voted for Trump, beat his ass, beat his ass. He voted for Trump. And, you know, I just kept thinking, I didn't even hear about this thing. I had a, you know, hey, check this video out. It didn't even have that many views. And I looked for various copies of it, and there were no real viral copies going around. I mean, maybe there were, and I didn't see them. But I just thought to myself, okay, so that guy who's being helplessly beaten, he's not even fighting back. His arms, he never even raises his arms to defend himself. He's just getting pummeled from all angles, right? And he's the deplorable, and these are the civil Clinton supporters. And But what really you know, got me thinking was, what if the races had been reversed and the political affiliations had been reversed? What if a bunch of young white guys had been beating up a older black man and there was a white person yelling, he voted for Clinton, beat his ass, beat his ass. He's a Clinton voter. Imagine that. Would you have heard anything but that on the nightly news? It would have been the lead story on every, on every channel. It'd be in the New York times and the Washington post as proof of how a, a racist society, how Trump supporters are racist. Here they is. Here's these five white men beating this poor black man simply because he exercised his right to vote and he voted for somebody with whom they disagree. Right. It would be all over the place. Instead, you have all these young black guys beating the shit out of a white guy for voting for Trump. And it's not even mentioned. I didn't hear anything about it. I mean, maybe it was on the news and I didn't hear it because I don't watch it, you know, all the time, but I didn't hear about it. I guarantee you if it was white kids, Trump supporters beating a black Hillary support, it'd be the only thing that I would have heard about. It'd be going over and over again. So again, it's all these examples of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the left. Uh, and it's on display uh, dramatically now on the internet. You know, also, I started getting a bunch of emails um, yesterday or day before people, you know, hey, I watched the Occupy Wall Street uh, video and they just want to you know, congratulate me. I really appreciated it. I really liked what you said. You had a lot of courage, stuff like that. Now, I normally do get these emails coming in once in a while because people still watch it and people watch it all around the world. But the video is several years old. All of a sudden, I'm getting a bunch of them. I mean, you know, now you know, they're coming. I wonder what's going on. And then I noticed that somebody just uploaded the video to a YouTube channel a couple of days ago. 
and you know, a copy of it, the long one, the hour and 45 minutes, and it's already got almost a quarter million views in a day. So I guess this video, because it's about protests and things like that, is somehow getting sucked into people looking for protests and things like that about the uh, about Trump and, 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 and Clinton. And so now it's getting a second life. And I, you know, I've never actually uploaded that video to my YouTube channel. So maybe I'll do that. And if you haven't seen it, you know, check it out on my channel and maybe share it around and maybe we can help get get it out there on an even bigger scale. But I do think that a lot of people who are seeing it on this channel uh, may never have heard of me before and they're just finding out about me. So more people are also finding out about Peter Schiff. Uh, but more importantly, they are learning the message that I was trying to spread when I went to Occupy Wall Street in the first place. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.